Welcome to the Spacecraft Podcast, presented by Dan Moscrop and brought to you by them.co.uk, who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects, developers and interior designers. So I'm joined today by Rob Howarth from LTS Architects, and he's an associate director there. Rob, do you want to tell us a little bit about your career and how you ended up at LTS? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm an architect, sort of classically trained, so I've done the full stint at university. I worked in Manchester for a while, trained in Edinburgh and Sheffield, uh, and then I worked at a big well-known practice called Wilkinson Air Architects for about seven and a half years on really big stuff, basketball arenas, you know, competitions. And then I just kind of started to kind of want to drift and gravitate towards things that are sort of smaller and slightly more intimate, more sort of client relationships. And, you know, we, we designed big things that were kind of slightly impersonal. So I, I uh, had an opportunity at a small company to kind of grow the reputation and jump over there and work with a friend of mine who just started there about a year before. Uh, and I sort of took it and sort of never looked back, really. It's been really good. I've really enjoyed the, the shift. Uh, and the, one of the directors there is an interior designer first and an architect second. And pretty much every client we work with is a, an owner-occupier. So they, you know, they take hold of the space after. So you have that dialogue, which really helps shape the space, I think. So, yeah, that's, that's how I've got to where I am. And now I'm um, actively teaching still, so I teach a unit at the Bartlett at UCL uh, with uh, with one of uh, the other directors at LTS. So kind of very much involved in the academic as well as the sort of professional practice. Nice. What, what do you feel personally you get out of the teaching? I think it kind of keeps you on your toes um, because when you're teaching, you know, and you're teaching kids who are very smart, you you have to you know you really have to know your stuff so they look to you what we do is we do um what's called the dr so it's a it's a technical module um so we kind of plug into an overall unit and they look at design they go on the case study and then we come in and, and help the students realize their ideas but they've got such out there crazy ideas it's brilliant and you kind of you know you also stay in touch with the kind of moving trends you know there's obviously common themes between them so one guy this year is was struggling to decide what parts of his project were going to be real and which were virtual because it's all about augmented reality and things like that which was fascinating other people are obsessed with bamboo and you know what you've got to kind of bend and do with that so but we know experts and we've worked in the field for years you know um i worked on the basketball arena for about four years where we looked at inflatable buildings modular buildings long spans all that sort of thing so it's really good to kind of keep that knowledge fresh and the other thing is you it's the presentation techniques and styles change a lot you know i think we're in a really interesting phase of with graphical production where we've moved away from almost like in the sort of first so the sort of second phase of modern art you know it started with realism and now we've moved into impressionism you know and there's and it's it's not about photo real render anymore it's about other types of of media and it's a bit more artistry in it. So it keeps you in touch with that. And I think the minute that you drift away from that too much and you're too control, you know, controlled by cost plans or worried about viability or services design, you start to kind of lose a little bit of the, the reason you started to do it in the first place. Yeah, so it brings you back a bit of passion as well. Then. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. And what, what's the sort of difference between, say, the way that Wilkinson Air might approach a project to LTS? Oh, it's completely different. I mean, you know, the... It's, it's much more difficult when you're a smaller company because you've got to kind of make your own name and it's about reputation, it's about your relationship with your clients. People go to Wilkinson Air because they were a known brand. Um, so you could, you know, great projects would just fall on your lap whereas, in, in you know, when you're kind of grafting for it yourself, you, you kind of have to 
um, you have to kind of create the opportunities. So I started work there when we were looking at the Science Gallery, um, which is a project which just completed behind the Shard, really interesting project. And straight away, I was working on that at the same time as a sort of private house, and immediately it was much more about understanding the brief and getting in touch with the client and understanding all of the wants and needs of the space inside. Uh, and I, you know, a, a big company, you you kind of try your hardest to get outside. You want to be on the envelope. You want to be kind of, you know, designing the detail. You want to be doing the set piece building, you know, the kind of the, the, the sort of money shot, you know, you want to be involved in that. Whereas a lot of what we do is is kind of reimagining buildings and reimagining spaces, which I think as our cities grow, and as they become overpopulated and our resources start to diminish, the kind of opportunity to reimagine buildings into new uses is is both kind of essential and exciting. And, you know, I'd never worked on a refurb project and then I was working on two. And, and Science Gary is a classic intervention. There's always a project you did at university where you kind of think, well, let's reimagine a use, let's reimagine entrances, let's take a building that was designed for you know 18th century britain and, and and design of the 21st century britain you know so that was really good uh, and i had a lot more creative control uh, you know i was kind of designing doing the reports you know doing all the presentations going all to the planning meetings and ultimately got a slightly contentious contemporary intervention on a grade two star listed building so that was quite a big plus yeah and then the other project was was just a very small scale kind of house for a client who really liked traditional designs but he wanted a sort of city pad so it was kind of you know a little pied de terre for him and and yeah they were just you know they needed to be guided quite a lot but that was all about I mean that you know you can't even see the buildings there from the street but you know we got we got to show it to the RIBA judges and they came around it generated a lot of interest and that was fantastic we worked with joiners directly everything all the way down to like door handles and kind of you know handrails and things like that which you had a lot more liberty than a big commercial client who's kind of protect, you know, has got a sort of rule book of how to build. Yeah, I mean, you can really see in all the work we've looked, if you look at the uh, LTS website, the fact that it's interiors led, you know, yeah. interior led architecture, yeah. some of the, the wood detailing and everything's so beautiful. Yeah, I think it is, you know, that's that's what Greg sort of kept sort of telling me, you know, was was um, let's get inside the building. And, and another reason why I sort of started there is we use a bit of software which is known as kind of BIM um, which is all about kind of everything being in 3D um, and that's not really a sort of geeky desire although it's a kind of longer term you know we're going to move away from packs of drawings and things like that it's going to be models where you click on things and it tells yeah. you all the spec of it and everything it's more to be able to constantly model in 3D all the way through the stages the sort of classical way it'll work is you do a 3D model you get that agreed you get your planning app and then you, you kind of revert to 2D and you detail and you might make little pieces but this way allowed us to kind of constantly reapply materials we can load in the structural model the M&E model we can even you can even load in lighting models now with all the lighting set right and for the project that we did at City University it was you know, it was absolutely essential. We were constantly rendering it and the client kept saying, can we see it in this? Can we see it in that? You know, and so I'd kind of been sort of forced inside, you know, uh, we used to call it the sort of like warm and dry and the cold and wet teams, like, you know, on a bigger building. I've been kind of forced inside by Greg saying, let's get in, into the building. And now I can see how there's a lot of really great architecture out there that when you step inside, it really starts to kind of like become a little bit, 
dull or kind of yeah. you can tell they've kind of run out of energy or it's kind of wood steel concrete or it's kind of white and woods you know and the light's right and the space is interesting but you know in, from an interior's perspective you're less kind of bound by kind of Mises rules or a kind of desire to kind of for it to be absolutely kind of true and honest and avoid avoid fashion and things like that so we quite often have interiors guys on our team we had a great guy from kind of Brighton Uni and Greg teaches interiors still as well so he was getting wallpaper out and brass and all this sort of stuff and it's kind of a little bit freer and I think if you consider that you spend you know about 80% of your life in a building then that's kind of you know you don't want to put all your effort into this sort of three you know three minutes that you walk to it and in the door yeah, yeah. There's a there's a classic example of that down the road, um, just from Old Street. There's I can't remember the name of the building, but it's a building that looks like it's been skewed for its perspective. Yes, yeah. Oh, but there's a hotel, and I do love the building because, especially yeah. from the line that you look at from Old Street yeah. Station. Yeah. But in the bottom of the the building, they just put a hotel, and it's it's as if the hotel is unaware that it's in that building. It's exactly, just, yeah. It's yeah. just blasted, horribly branded, you know, <laughs> bright lights, and, and, and the, you know, the, the, the furniture doesn't match the architecture. It's, it's yeah, just two yeah. polar opposites crashing into each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, and I think that, you know, that gives us a bit of a, an edge. I mean, you know, it's, it's a competitive world. We're a small practice. We've often been termed the sort of, you know, the best not known practice in London, you know, cool. so, so we can, but you know, we've been doing it for a long time and, and actually when, when people kind of see our work, they're really surprised. And I think it's, it's sort of, you know, that, that continuity from inside to outside and that same amount of effort and energy is really, really important. And it, and it kind of shows in the end. And, you know, we find that, that when we send that work out and we do newsletters and things like that, people really start to go, oh can you do you know can you do our house can you look at this can you look at that and you know it's it's about it's about not being sort of snobbish about any size of project you know it's kind of like we want you to look at this reception or can you do as a student union and you've got to kind of speak to the people who run it you know for the student union which was displaced to to put the science gallery in we we had so much dialogue with them and the student the student union team you know and it was kind of it was quite wearing and you know they couldn't really make their mind up and that was difficult but in the end we sort of doubled their revenue in the first yeah. week of term you know they just they, they they had the full year's revenue up to christmas and the first meeting that i tried to have on the saturday in there i couldn't get a seat and that's a really nice feeling then you know then the whole kind of um the kind of reason that you're doing it you know is is evident and you kind of forget about what decisions didn't go your way or you know this door handle fell off or there's a claim on this or that and it all becomes about we, we were employed here to kind of improve the nature of this space for the people enjoying it and when you see that kind of everything falls away and it's just totally worthwhile yeah i find we're probably a fairly similar size i mean you're probably a bit bigger than us actually we're, we're only at eight but i find you, if you go to say a conference quite often you find people talking about you shouldn't be taking jobs under this sort of price yeah, level yeah, but yeah. we've found that you need to get that first job to get you in the door to really impress them on yeah. what difference you can make even at a small level before you can go on to bigger projects and bigger projects it's true yeah yeah. I mean it's hard isn't it the ones that you really enjoy aren't always are quite often the ones or the mm. ones that win prizes are quite often the ones that, that haven't made you a lot of money so we do other projects which are a bit more standard as well you know more churn work which you kind of have to but you know even with that you know there is a kind of there's a very hands-on approach everyone gets involved the directors are very kind of involved in the direction you know in the way the design is going to develop and 
I think it's important. You kind of can't forget that, you know, you might think a small, well, it's 500,000, it's quite a small job. That's a lot of money for someone, you know. And someone's paying you, you know, tens of thousands of pounds to design the house. They're going to live in that. You know, I'm doing two forever homes at the moment. They're literally, you know, they're not planning on moving ever. That's quite a big sort of responsibility. If you consider they put all their faith in you to design the house of their dreams, then... Yeah, maybe that, you know, okay, it's not a sort of blue chip client, it's not a sort of, you know, landmark building, but arguably it's maybe more important to one person than a whole kind of city that kind of see it as a little bit of a kind of white elephant. Do you find that on those kind of projects, because it's so personal to your client, that they're quite tricky? And I don't mean in a derogatory way at all, but trying to pull out their vision to make sure that you hit what they want but then take it on that step further. I, I quite often find yeah. if we work with smaller practices to do their branding and things like that, yeah, you, you yeah. might they might have a really clear idea of what they really want yeah. and, and they're just trying to guide you into getting there. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, the sort of ideal scenario is to kind of give them, you know, what they didn't know they wanted. You know, yeah. that people... We've had a whole series of meetings, particularly with houses where people come with a series of pictures and you're like, oh, this is going to be a tough one, you know. So we had a guy up in Cheshire who's kind of moving in a few doors down from Freddie Flintoff and he had some really gaudy Cheshire housewife mansions. We had, you know, uh, a guy who lived in Dorset who wanted an eco house and was showing us pictures of Californian sort of Richard Mayer-esque homes. And you have to sort of work double hard to kind of show them what they want and then put it immediately next to something that you think is right for not just them, but the sort of the time, you know, the place, the, lo- the locality, the family, you know. And we find that sort of nine times out of ten, we, we do get there. But when you kind of when you kind of flick that switch, you know, we had the guy up in Manchester was a contractor and he, you know, he was very specific and he was quite sort of like um he's very particular about kind of how quickly he wanted things doing but as soon as we showed him something that he not even thought that he wanted he just backed off and he was like you know you know i remember putting the planning app in and thinking you know i'll how about this and it's going to look better and he just said look just do whatever you think's right (laughs) so so you know i think i think you've got to get to that place which takes a bit of time and sometimes, yeah, people people don't want to let go. But but it's good when you have someone who's really involved in it. You know, for the for the city project, you know, the original brief was like knock down a few walls and kind of make a couple of bigger classrooms and lose a storeroom. You know, and we need a couple of gender neutral toilets and we stripped out the whole building and put a new entrance in and everything. But that was really driven by the head of estates, who was an ex architect, and he was like. So you need to think a lot bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's great, you know, that when someone someone kind of wants that. But then we found with that, you know, every colour, every chair had to get signed off by him. You know, so. So, um, so this one's the Drysdale building for City University. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how? how, Let's talk about that one because obviously spacecraft's about workplace, and I Mm. think it's quite an interesting difference because the City University you've had to create hundreds, literally hundreds of workplaces, like little work environments for students. So, on that one, how did you win that work? Was that a competition or...? That was that was a framework job, so they, they were renewing their framework um, and uh, they wanted to get some fresh new architects in. Um, we, we kind of bid for it and Anna, who who just joined maybe six months earlier from Wilkinson Air as well, I think we've, we've got sort of a Wilkinson Air rehab <laughs> <laughs> of maybe like three... Yeah, I think there's four of us there now, you know. 
and yeah, I think I think Kevin knew Kevin who who was the head of estates there knew Anna came in for the interview and kind of won the job. So that job started, and you know, as a kind of like, and I think Anna had you know been involved with some quite big, completely new you know multi million pound built buildings on the campus. So and this was a kind of you know IT lab refurb. So we were invited in to um, to to look at this space, and they had to kind of create. Uh, a lot more workplaces in the same space and it was kind of billed as well you've kind of won a peach of a job here slightly sarcastically that we would just be looking at a few fire eggs and knocking down a few walls and, and, and kind of changing it but um, I think we had a slightly different kind of approach and and so did Kevin so it quite quickly became something that moved very very fast um, and that in terms of reimagining buildings I mean that's that's a really interesting one because it was designed as an IT lab and we yeah. redesigned it as an IT lab. Yeah. So as far as workplace environment goes, all we were redesigning was the environment. It wasn't even like a change of use and it was designed at a certain time and certain kind of, you know, theories were kind of going around university campuses and, and they've changed. So I mean, what it's a much better way of doing it than kind of creating a new facility somewhere else and letting that, fall, that, that uh, floor fall into disrepair, so... Yeah, I remember you showed me before this the um, the floor plans, and it just seemed like a massive corridor. It was a yeah. Well, you find this quite often. You know, there's the original imagined space, and then if if an architect's not involved, and you know, we can be expensive. You know, so we tend to get cut out later on, and decisions get made. People quite quickly kind of put up walls here, separate things, divide things, redivide things. And if you're not looking at it on plan, then suddenly it becomes a war in the corridors and no one can find the way. And people didn't know it was the ground floor of the building. All the, all the kind of windows were covered with a sort of uh, a film because they were worried about people stealing computers from outside. Um, you couldn't enter through the ground floor. I mean, it was a, a bit of a mess. I think we worked out about 15 to 20%, maybe 17% of the floor plate was, was circulation in just in terms of corridors, which is wasted, effectively. Yeah. yeah. So that was a huge kind of, you know, space resource there to, to kind of un- unlock if we could, so... You, you mentioned when we met about the fact that in Manchester they were... Um the plan was always to have this monorail running around, so it was never meant to yeah. have a ground floor entrance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know whether it was the same there. I mean, it, you know, these theories go round. There's, there's probably ones now, you know. Well, there is, I guess, you know, in terms of co-working and things like that. But in Manchester, yeah, there was... So the whole set of buildings built in the 70s, there was... The academics were convinced that monorail was the sort of uh, travel of the future. Uh, you know, it's only travel in Alton Towers, really, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know where else... But, um, you know, maybe a few American cities, you know. Um, and so they put all the principal floor, uh, I think, 17 metres up in the air, you know. And um, and and what and, and it's the same, the other kind of, the ideas really started with Corbusier and you can see it with the Barbican, you know, a raised street plane, streets in the sky. It was the first time we could build open air spaces really high up, so why don't we reimagine it? And, of course, the kind of counter effect of that is you kill the ground plane yeah. because because there's kind of like life is always in one area and, and it's kind of been moved up a level. So you enter this particular building through a bridge and then down a core and you didn't really know what floor you were on. And then you went through a warren. It was it was pretty much like you'd been blindfolded, span around and then and then walked into a room and asked, where, where, where are you? So, uh, and you know, and... and it took us a while to figure out what was there. They'd just done a whole refurb of the of the ground floor, new entrance, so that we quickly got a hold of plans for that. And then 
completely changed the way you came into the building. We dropped all of the window height. We created sort of bench seating inside, which linked outside. There was a huge bike store there, which was massively oversized, which was killing a really, well, a sun trap, really, an amazing sun trap. And the, the, the initial brief was just we want a bit more light and a bit more space. And, you know, it was kind of, we gave much more than that in the end, you know. So, yeah. so but that was just, you know, a, a kind of a good client and a good bit of momentum. Looking back at that, a bit more space, I think mean, that's quite a, an understatement. We yeah. might, You managed to improve capacity from 240 to 400. How yeah. did you achieve that? The really bold part of that job, which is probably our fault my fault you know it's was that we we kind of walk around and quite often when i do a site visit i carry a, a laser measure in my pocket because very quickly then you can get an idea of what you can do with the floor to ceiling height and i sort of there was a ceiling panel missing and i could tell the carpet was down on concrete and you know there was a sort of i think the floor to ceiling was 4190 which was which gives you two two meter clear spaces with 190 uh, millimeters, which isn't even an A4 page for a floor zone, and we thought we can get a mezzanine in here. <laughs> <laughs> so the first meeting with the structural engineer, we we um, we said, look, we need a floor zone to work in a hundred mil, and I've never done that before. In fact, each job that I worked on, at, you know, LTS, we've got a mezzanine in, and that floor zone keeps shrinking. I think with CLT, you can probably get it down further now. So that was four one nine. So we had, we thought, we forget. With the finishes and everything, we get up to 150. We've got 40 mil to spare. Kind of what what happened when we, when the steel actually went in and they they bought into the mezzanine and everything because it gave them this extra 150 seats as well as putting all the classroom space at the back of the plan. Is the floor slab was all over the place and I think it was kind of you know it was deviating down to something like you know four one kind of four zero and stuff like that. And it's funny when you kind of in these state to the project you know i'd go out of town to these little villages you know market towns and you'd be like that's that's about 18 18 you know and then you know when i went on site before the you know all the contractors were tearing the hair out with this mezzanine they were like oh this would be a great job without the mezzanine it's a headache you know people were putting conduit up everywhere and we were saying we can't do that and we were like well why and it's like we found the headlight and they you know the hard hats were literally hitting it you know, and I went round the laser and it sort of read like a sort of, you know, a, a classic sort of 90s album, 97, 98, 1999. <laughs> I was like, oh God, like this is going to be a disaster. Um, but actually, it's the thing that most makes the space. You know, it's yeah. the thing that's memorable. And, and if you kind of consider the way people work, particularly on machines, then head height's not as much of an issue because mm. you're, you're kind of low. You know, you, you, you're, you're kind of sitting down and your screen height's much lower. And it completely changed the way we had to do everything. So we reimagined the way that the air was going to come in. You know, all the lighting on the desk, you couldn't even put a light fitting above the desk because it was going to foul it. So we designed bespoke lights, which kind of went over the desk and uplit the top. You know, there was no room for finishes, which made the, you know, the, the construction very lean. Uh, you know, all of the timbers had to be exposed. So we kind of made them big enough that they would kind of char for long enough. And... Every morning now, when they open that space up, people rush in to, to, to be under like these spaces, you know. And then, because it doesn't fill the whole space, you get this kind of compression, you know. And apparently, you know, and this is this is the sort of director of projects, you know, says it's the most popular place in the university. It's been far more successful than, than, than they thought. So that's a real kind of win. You know, I, I sort of say that in a, in a slightly through rose-tinted sort of spectacles because the actual process on site and the arguments and the, and the kind of ag from the contractor 
was was quite severe, you know, because it was painful and it was quite risky. But, you know, for a, a few millimetres, you know, I don't know, it was kind of worth it. <laughs> so, yeah. You, you've also introduced a, a really smart little area where it reduces social media hogging of computers. So that's kind of Anna's, Anna's, uh, Anna Woodson, who's sort of director as well, has a lot of his, case history in, in um, educational design, school design, and is kind of really passionate about it. And so we convinced the client that we needed to do not just a stage one, which is kind of almost the first stage, really, that you get appointed where you're looking at brief, but stage zero where it was kind of like, let's build the brief. So we went and spoke to, you know, professors, like even class professors, students, the tech guy, um, did a whole series of briefings about kind of the space. Um, they're kind of traditionally known as, as the stakeholders or user groups. And by the estates departments and most universities are considered a bit of a nuisance because they've all got very kind of conflicting desires and views and wants and needs and they just make the project painful. But actually, it kind of really helped because each person wanted something different. So it was actually the, the IT guy who said it's a real issue because people, you know, people are paying big sums of money to kind of, um, you know, to come to, to universities and people will come to, a, to sit in the areas and they'll be on Facebook for two hours and that's, that's, that's stopping someone learning, you know, and the students would never say that. They would never say, oh, it's annoying, you know. So, so we sort of said, well, what about stand-up machines, you know, like, or if you want to go and print something, you know, you don't always have to use a machine for, for kind of half an hour. And, and in fact, you're encouraged to, you know, to, to dwell there longer if you are sitting down. So we created areas where we had standing machines and it was kind of in the, under the mezzanine. So we called it the Facebook Nook. And in fact, like, it's, it's quite interesting. These kind of phrases don't get out, but when you kind of dig through a job folder, there was a render called Facebook Nook, version five, like you know, fi- final, come... final, final, <laughs> final. Final, 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 yeah. final. Artwork final. Yeah. Um, two. Yeah, yeah. Do you, so, and, and have they adopted that name? I don't think so. I mean, you know, you kind of can't... You no, know, I don't think... I think what's happened, actually, is they drag stools into that area and people sit there as well and they, and they probably quite like it. So I don't know whether it's worked, but... It's good to try these things out, you know. Um, I mean, I, I, have, I can't go in there regularly, obviously I haven't got a pass, but I did go in there semi-frequently and I like going in when people aren't there. But I do know that Anna went for the sort of one-year defects the other day and she still couldn't get a seat. They had to sort of sit wow. in an area. So what we did is we, is we created lots of different types of workspace. So we had there's a huge bent in, in modern teaching on group learning uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, the, the sort of... The old model of teacher at front of classrooms, you know, is totally dead and is is seen as very archaic and and not very you know productive or conducive to learning. It's now about group learning, which is kind of obvious, really, isn't it? You know, the yeah. sort of the collective intellect's much better. You know, helping each other on problems. You know, so the teaching spaces were all about deaths of about six, and you know that was that was kind of underpinned by quite a lot of academic research about ideal group size. You know, we had circular tables which encouraged people to kind of like reach out and, and ask each other because you couldn't sort of see the screen. So that all was one aspect. But we kind of divided the floor plate in half between formal teaching and then what we called open access and, and kind of where you go with your mates and you go and sit there. But we were keen to kind of make sure there was different types of work environments because students are different. I mean, I'm a very reclusive worker. You know, I, I really like sitting in a room and, you know, putting some kind of house music on loud and not talking to anyone. And I'm quite kind of rude on the phone if you call me when I'm right in the middle of my flow because I kind of like that. 
but I, I realise I'm probably more of an anomaly. A lot of people like to f- sort of feel like they're getting somewhere if they're with people, or really s- struggle to focus if you know if they're if they're not with people. So we had group booths which kind of encourage face-to-face con- contact. We had huge long desks. You know, the desks I think fit 18 students. You know, which is more like a kind of workplace style design. And then upstairs, you've got desks of four and you can only sort of sit for. And then there's places where you can literally just kind of face a wall or face a window. And then the the way we kind of squeezed in extra workspace was to have these big old benches where there is no set machines, but it was a kind of bring your own device scenario. So you could be in the same place. And, you know, by all accounts, you sort of see the doors open and people run to the spot that they want. So... I mean, the key thing that like we... Like Black Friday yeah. experience. <laughs> yeah. But what we need to do is, is probably kind of go in there and, and see what's worked and what's not and kind of reapply that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a kind of middle ground between a kind of workplace. And, and, you know, I think what I'm keen to test is the common notion now that, you know, working's changed and that actually, you know, kids like working in coffee shops with sort of headphones in, you know, but are they really concentrating on how much, how, how much productivity is there there? You know, like sometimes the old models are working and the traditional ways of kind of learning are are kind of still hold true so we'll see you know i don't know how you measure that but it'd be interesting to test it out and what would you say is the difference between designing a workspace for professionals versus a student oh that's a good question um well i think it it depends i mean we're we're all trying to adapt to new ways of working now aren't we and that you know like i have heard a conversation the other day as I was stepping into the office and, you know, I think this fellow was describing his his um, uh, his wife's job and she's freelance and she knows she likes to kind of work at home and she can work in the barbican and she can, you know, get a coffee and it's all really nice and, you know, and I kind of thought, is this the sort of modern sort of kind of Elysium workplace that you can work anywhere and, you know, you can work in bed and you can work on a train it gives you that ability. We've kind of been freed up by that. Yeah. But then he said, but at the same time, sometimes she kind of works at night and sometimes, you know, like, she's never really not working. So, like... The boundaries you know, are blurring, aren't they? They yeah. are a bit, yeah. And, and we were already seeing that with phones and it's kind of really interesting, like, you know, I think the key thing is is to kind of keep realistic about it like because you know the sort of the screen time things come up on your phone now and it's a started conversation you know i think social media companies are taking a bit more responsibility for their sort of swipe up generation but you actually find people are slightly more health conscious than they are and you know it's interesting with the science gallery that their whole uh, exhibition was on addiction and and kids are really worried about being addicted to social media and they're kind of like they're almost going we're in a you know a, a space that people haven't been before you know and, and adults are just sort of going yeah you don't know and you, you're all this and that and they're all they're sort of saying well what should we be doing and how you know so I kind of think it, it depends on open dialogue I think I think with workplace we've got a real kind of issue at the moment where the kind of younger generation in our office the productive work staff really want music on they like the commotion they like the banter and you've got the senior staff who kind of want you know, a bit more decorum. They they're kind of writing. They're on phone to clients. So, I do I do think this the, the kind of ideas that are spreading about spaces for certain activities are you know well informed. But you know, I think I think we we've all got to be sort of wary of the kind of Google phenomenon where people go, oh, they've got slides in the office and you know this and that. I do think there's a lot of kind of myths that circulate. And there was a sort of classic myth that used to go around that that I think. 
every employee at Google had to spend 15% of their time working on a side project, which was innovative. Yeah. And that a lot of new scripts and new things had kind of, you know, come out of that, that you kind of give people a bit more liberty. But if you actually read up on that a bit closer, it's nonsense. People find there's often projects that are kind of unfinished or they lack drive or they actually get a load of emails done. You know, so kind of monitoring that and, and kind of creating spaces that are kind of quiet and not, you know, are, are kind of really important, I think. It's it's tricky. I mean, you'll be amazed how many times the slides come up in conversation as yeah. the, the worst example of an office. But mm. I, I like the way Jenny Jones puts it on her previous podcast yeah. uh, about creating thresholds. So there's yes. a literal visual and sound and acoustic sort of step up or step down yeah. when yeah. you move into another environment and you feel like you can do a different type of work somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't know whether... I, it kind of this this idea didn't continue through the Drysdale project, but it was talked about initially in terms of how noisy things were. And what we did is we just created a we took the floor plan and we created a color map of kind of silent to to kind of noisy spaces and everything in between. And one of the, the ideas we floated, which I thought, which I think still is really interesting, is is the quiet coach on a train because it's a kind of quiet, self-regulating space. Uh, and that's really interesting because what universities or places of work, the last thing you want is the quiet police going around. But if you get a phone call on a quiet coach, a lot of people turn around. You're in a minute, you know, you feel like you've stepped out of line. You know, someone will quite often say, can you step outside? You know, there's a kind of common majority that's going to self-regulate that space. And all they've done is said, this is the quiet coach. Yeah, and literally a sticker on a glass. Yeah, yeah, so that's really powerful. So, So we kind of... One of the ideas is is we sort of we, we kind of came up with a floor plan. I mean, it didn't work space wise in the end, but we said this is the noisy half, and you kind of you, there's a series of thresholds that you step through that aren't kind of completely acoustically sealed. The way you kind of get to the end, and that is the quiet space, you yeah. know. Um, and I think I think more of that thinking needs to come in. You know, I definitely think the way we work is changing. I think it's a good thing. You know, I think the ability for people to kind of work away from where they you know are located is really good i think for rural economies they absolutely depend on it um you know we don't want to endlessly migrate into cities and they grow and grow and grow so it's great that people can work in isolated locations but what is common to a lot of research is that is that sort of collective discourse uh you know really you know advances productivity really you know and and the kind of idea that a kind of problem, you know, attacked from some multiple sides by different minds is going to be solved much quicker should yeah. be encouraged. So, yeah. and that doesn't matter what, whether it's an assignment or a kind of multi-million pound building or graphic design or uh, anything really. So, so that, so we, we have a duty to, to kind of, you know, to create the condition, the ideal conditions for that, I think. So back to the Drysdale business, uh, building and in, in, how did the client react once you'd completed it? It's quite a sort of tense relationship at the end because a lot of things hadn't gone right right on site, and you know. So I think it's, it's more in retrospect. I think I think they spent a bit more than they wanted to. In the end, the the program was very sort of you know tense. You know, um, we pretty much from from the first meeting to when it was done, it was done in a year. So which is incredible speed to wow. do a project. I think it would have been a much better end result if it had another six months. But unfortunately for universities, you're strapped into. An academic start yeah. but I think they're really they're really happy with it now you know I think I think they really got a lot for their money 
it kind of must pay for itself if you can get an extra 200 people in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's harder to realise, isn't it, in a, in a university, the kind of cash benefit of it because, you know, you're not charging per desk or anything. But um, it's, yeah. it's evident in the way that it's it's being used and still used that it's been a great success. So I think, um, you know, I think they were pleasantly surprised that there was moments in that project as well, like we talked about earlier, you know, they exposed the the concrete soffit and I was getting calls from all the senior guys going we've got to do something about it I mean, it's awful you know you've got to wait till you see it and I kind of walked in and went oh I love it <laughs> <laughs> and we love the rawness of it and, and you know we even like the sort of the memory of the different layers ages of, of the building and layers of paint on the yeah. columns and there was a bit missing you know and it you know it kind of was his you know very on vogue to kind of have a, a stripped back carcass and then insert something new but that's a big thing about interventions in buildings. Like, I think you do have to be very clear about, you know, where, what's new, what's old. And the more that you kind of show that off and kind of play those two parts against each other, the more it works, I think. Yeah. You know, smart casual. <laughs> yeah. And in a situation like that, I'm looking out at our concrete ceiling here. Yeah. Um, what, what is it that you say to your clients? How do you get them talked around? Or was it they just sort of, bowed to your superior knowledge uh, oh I don't know whether it yeah I think we, we we definitely try and avoid that I think that's that's a big thing about LTS compared to somewhere like Wilkinson Air is the sort of traditional kind of on high slightly snooty over educated architect kind of like laughing at your suggestions we've really got to break that down because it's more about understanding their wants and needs you yeah. know which we did bend to it in that you know that the colours for me you know we'll see how they age over time but they really wanted color and light so we kind of went for that but it's about it's about a level of confidence it's it's very hard you know with it's very hard without the aid of sort of visual media to kind of show it off but you know we kind of just sort of said trust us you know like it'll be it'll it'll be good Mm. and there's all sorts of like in public buildings unfortunately health and safety is a big issue so there was like pock marks in the ceiling and people you know and we're going to shove chewing gum in that and scroll on this and you know so it's kind of it was tricky but I think quite often that raw aesthetic kind of wins out because it's very cost effective it's like yeah. well we can if you want but you want to paint the whole ceiling you know that's going to add a week on the program and you know you've got to cover everything up it's going to shut on site activity down for, for, for you know two days can we afford that time so mm. but yeah I think you know it depends on people's houses they're much more keen to get it perfect you know on academic institutions or public buildings it depends on how much control the client wants but eventually you can win them round if you if you, if you kind of if you believe yourself <laughs> it really is a fabulous job i'll put yeah. some images up on the uh, on the podcast so um just to wrap up what, what are you working on next so at the moment we are uh we're doing a few private houses um and we the sort of science gallery site is is kind of ever evolving so we are um we're we're looking at some of the areas in it and um involved in very interesting sort of projects with kings we're looking at the moment at sort of scoping out they've got a huge campus and a, and a big ability you've got lots of spaces that that haven't really that are underused or not used at all or derelict and uh, there's a big drive to try and um sort of sell these spaces to clients so i think what 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 they're nervous about is investing huge money in in kind of upgrading property which then isn't used mm-hmm. so there's a new kind of wave of tenants that are coming in that are kind of attracted to the hospital the university a healthcare campus 
science, research, you know, and it's kind of a really interesting area, London Bridge, in that we've now got Guy's Tower, we've got a new cancer research centre, there's a huge kind of like campus potential going up. And these small startup companies, you know, in sort of stem cell research or kind of gene therapy, you know, are are all kind of like growing much quicker than they thought and they want to kind of plug into that. So what we've been involved in doing is is kind of rather than just, you know, a sort of standard set of floor plans is, is we've got involved with smaller companies who are looking at marketing brochures that sell these spaces. And we just completed one before Christmas, which was a few plans and some, you know, some kind of visuals and a lot more imagination into the way it looked and felt kind of more on the line of kind of, you know, big developers will sell flats off plan. Mm. And it's had a huge impact straight away. So, you know, already we've had a new inquiry this year and, you know, we'll see how they keep coming because, you know, it's really about selling an idea to someone, getting some buy-in and then it's kind of like almost like a public-private partnership. So there's a few of those things happening. There's a house we've been working on, a forever home uh, out in Suffolk, another eco home for a couple who used to live in London that that is going on site, which we're really excited about, um, fussing over bricks at the moment, um, you know. And there's another, you know, another few private house jobs, and then we've got some big apartment schemes going up, which will be interesting how they fare with the with the economy. Uh, and then a few jobs and sites. So, um, but we are probably more on more frameworks now. We're on frameworks with. Uh, you know various London universities competitions getting harder to kind of win students you know I think King said they've seen a 50% drop in applications from Europe uh, which is a real shame because of Brexit and um, you know so they are competing ever more for you know foreign students and places so yeah I think you know I think we're we're gonna it's, it's made it more competitive so so you know reimagining these spaces attracting students and understanding what students want out of how the how the places they learn is is really important rob thank you very much really good to talk no to problem you. thanks Cheers. for inviting me on thanks you've been listening to the spacecraft podcast presented by dan mosscrop brought to you by them.co.uk who provides specialist graphic design support for commercial architects developers and interior designers we'll be back with another episode soon so please subscribe and keep listening